Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Michael Carmen is co-head of private markets at Wellington Management. Wellington's a fascinating company. Uh, they've been around literally nearly a century. At one point in time, Jack Bogle, founder of, of Vanguard, uh, was chairman of their mutual funds. Uh, just really a fascinating history from, from a private company to a public company back to a, a partnership. Really interesting. And, and Michael has had a, a bird's eye view of this for, for really the past 25 years. Uh, he is uniquely situated because he has run both public mutual funds as well as privates, uh, including late-stage venture, private equity, credit down the list. He, he really sees all sides of, of the elephant and is capable of describing it in a way that I thought was both fascinating and, and informative. I found this to be an interesting discussion, and I think you will also, with no further ado, my conversation with Wellington Management's Michael Carmen. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for having me. So, so let's talk a little bit about Wellington, which has really a fascinating history. Not only have they been around since, I think, 1925, almost 100 years old. And one point in time, Jack Bogle was their chairman, uh, at least of the mutual fund division. T tell us a little bit about the firm's history and how it's evolved over the past 100 years. Sure. Well, I haven't been there for most of the hundred years, just so you're just so you're aware. Okay, you um, you look a little younger than that. Thank you. I pre I appreciate that. And as you noted, the firm's almost a hundred years old. Started in 1928. And twenty eight. One of the interesting aspects of the firm is that it was a public company at one point in the 1970s. The company went private in 1979, and we became a partnership. Twenty nine original partners. We now have almost two hundred partners. And we've gone through probably about three generations of partnership change, which is very unusual, as you know, in the business. It usually is very difficult, but because the ownership was very dispersed among all of the partners, it made those transitions very easy. And so we've grown from a very small company with 29 partners back in 1979 to, as you noted, over a trillion dollars of assets, and it become very diversified. We were originally 
very equity heavy back mm -hmm. in the day, and we made a lot of investments on the fixed income side. So fixed income is now a substantial percentage of our assets. We entered uh, the liquid alts market with hedge funds back in 1994, and we entered the private market in 2014 with my product uh, in late stage growth. So, so you weren't there in 28, you weren't there in 79. When did you join Wellington? I joined in 1999 in the middle of the tech bubble as right. a growth investor. Great timing. Uh, for the first nine months, sure. Right. Uh, it was April of 99. I had an amazing 99 and early 2000. And I had left a hedge fund. So I was probably one of the few people to leave a hedge fund and go to a larger institution in the middle of the tech bubble. But I wanted to be on a larger platform. I love being with a lot of other investors and being mm -hmm. very collaborative and collegial. And I felt that that's what embodied Wellington's culture, which was exactly what I what I got and what we continue to be today. And so I loved it from the first day I got there. And now I've been there for just under 25 years. So let's define some terms. Everybody knows what a hedge fund is, but let's talk about liquid alts. How do you define liquid alts? Liquid alts, I basically define as versions of hedge funds. Basically, an, you know, it's a, it's a synonym for hedge funds and thinking about the alts market, right? There's liquid alts and then there's non-liquid alts, which would be mostly on the private side. Right. And so our initial thrust was with our first hedge fund, it was a financial services hedge fund started by Nick Adams back in 1994, which will, I guess, be celebrating its 30th anniversary wow. uh, next year. And now we have a number of different hedge funds. Some we have in the macro, we have multi-strat, we have point hedge funds with uh, in technology, uh, in the healthcare field. And so we've built out over $20 billion hedge fund liquid alt uh, business. And now we've added uh, privates to that. So so I want to focus on, on the phrase liquid alts, which I don't think a lot of lay people understand. Typically, when you're invested in, in a hedge fund or private equity, you agree to be locked up for a certain period of time. There are occasional windows or gates that open, and you could take some capital out. So when you commit to PE or venture or whatever, that, that money is, figure seven or to 10 years, you're not going to touch it. When you say liquid alts, what you're really saying is, if you need this money back within X period of time, you could get some or all of it. What what is distinguished liquid alts from these illiquid locked up privates? Sure. When I think of liquid alts, there's probably two parts of it. So one is, to your point, the money is not locked up for multiple years. Generally, we have a one to maybe two year lockup where you can you can't uh, access that capital. But more importantly. When I refer to liquid alts, it's generally the investments that they're making are in liquid liquid products, mostly public market products. And you can go long, you can go short, you can have leverage, you can have higher exposure levels, but the securities are in the liquid public markets versus private equity, which are in illiquid private markets. So it applies to both you, the investor, have a, a much shorter period of illiquidity and specifically the assets that the fund is investing in. Correct. And, uh, and definitely more emphasis on the, the types of investments the fund is, is making. So, so you started out investing directly in the public market, small cap, mid cap, uh, various styles. 
How did you find your way to that side of the street, the more private side of the street? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. And so to your point, I was a public portfolio manager, started as a tech analyst and made my way to associate portfolio manager and then began managing uh, public portfolios in 1996 prior to getting to Wellington. Where, where were you managing those for in 96? For, for a hedge fund? Or for so that was actually Montgomery Asset Management. I don't know okay. if you remember the old sure. Montgomery yes. uh, Securities. And, old school. Correct. And I love Montgomery and Robertson Stevens and all these boutique yeah, firms yeah. that are all gone. Uh, but they started an asset management division. And I, my family and I moved out to California. And that was my first job in being a portfolio manager was running a small cap fund uh -huh. uh, for them back in 1996. A little bit of a tech bias or it didn't matter? You go it was, anywhere. It was diversified. But you know, as a growth manager, obviously, you're going to have a reasonable weight to the tech sector. And I was... I started as a tech analyst, um, but I became over the years, I became a much more diversified investor. That's probably the biggest reason I was able to navigate the other side of the tech bubble because I grew up in a period where I did invest in other sectors besides tech. Mm -hmm. And so that was very helpful when tech went out of favor for basically uh, a decade. Right. So, so who were the investors when you started doing small cap and, and growth? And are these the same sorts of investors uh, now doing privates at Wellington. So when I my first fund that I ran when I was at Montgomery was a mutual fund. So uh -huh. it was all individual investors. And that was the period of time where you can be in uh, some news, news uh, publication and your fund would become hot and you would get hundreds of millions of dollars right. in assets in a short period of time. And that's literally what happened to us. But when you think about what I'm doing today and the types of investors I have today, Today, it's more of a combination of wealth management, so more in the family office, high net worth, ultra high net worth, and then the other half of our business uh, is lar large, in large and medium-sized institutions. How do you transition from public investing, public stocks, you know, mom and pop, mutual fund investors, to family offices and privates? I would imagine that's a series of pretty significant changes both in what you're investing in and, and the process of finding things to put capital into. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think of it as I've had a second career, right? That I've made this transition. That difference. It, it's like I was a lawyer. So this is my second career or third career, if you include asset management. But I would think public and private are kind of shades of the same thing. You're saying a, a distinct difference from public mutual fund to private equity and, and late stage venture. They are shades of the same thing. So no doubt, all of the skills that I garnered on the public side have been transferable to the private side. And in fact, in terms of what I do specifically in late stage growth, my message has always been that we've been able to bring our public market expertise to the private markets because the companies we're investing in as you're aware, used to go public at a much earlier stage. When I was right, going right. back to that small cap fund that I ran, I would sit across the table from companies that had two, three, four hundred million dollar market caps that were going public, right? The best example I always love to give is that Amazon's last private round was at a $60 million post-money valuation. That's unbelievable. Correct. And today, as you know, you have companies like Stripe doing $55 billion rounds, right? Post-money valuations. And so the market has changed dramatically. And so to your question, the way I started getting into this market was effectively 
the FOMO of now seeing companies staying private longer as a public market investor. And I was running mutual funds at Wellington as well as one of our hedge funds. And I had the latitude to invest a certain percentage of my assets in illiquid investments. And From Wellington, even though you're running mostly public equities. Correct. Under the 40 Act, you right. could have up to, and you wouldn't do this, but you could have up to 15% in uh, illiquid securities. And for me, in my mutual funds, I was in like the, the mid to high single digits, and but I started getting involved in buying a lot of these companies as I realized that companies were beginning to stay private longer. And to clarify, the way the SEC defined illiquid securities in the 40 Act for mutual funds, some of these might even have been public companies, but trade by appointment, not a lot of float, not a lot of shares, or was it strictly non-public private companies? Well, you're getting above my pay grade in right. terms of being that specific. That's why you're the lawyer and I'm not. Not, not for 30 years. <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it just seems funny that the SEC would say uh, up to 15%. You just wonder what was the genesis of that? Was this uh, just not widely traded stocks or was it really not public stocks? I don't know specifically the answer to the whys of this, since it was done. Another thing that was done before my time, 1940. Right. But I was just a kid back then, so I, <laughs> yes. I don't remember. I wasn't paying attention. So, so then this raises a kind of interesting question. You're you're adding more private and illiquid stocks to your portfolio. At what point does Wellington sort of rub its chin and say, "Hey, this is an interesting space. We're really." private curious. We want to see if we can expand to this. What What's that process like? So the rubbing of the chin occurred in October of 2012 when I wrote a memo to my partner in crime, Shannon O'Reilly, who's now my co-head on privates. And I said, hey, I think this might be a really long-term secular trend of companies staying private longer. And I do think it's challenging to buy illiquids in publicly daily traded vehicles because right. of the illiquidity aspect of it, we should consider doing a dedicated fund to take advantage of this trend for our clients. And so that was about two years before our first close. And so we had never, as you noted, we've never done private. So we had to socialize if this was a business and a direction that we wanted to take. And I think that Wellington has always been very bottom up and very entrepreneurial. Right. And so after explaining why I thought we can do super well in this category, we launched the product in 2014 and we were fortunate to have several of our clients who believed in us and believed in the team. And so we had our first close in 2000, November of 2014, and ultimately we raised a billion dollars for our first fund in the private space. So, so from a billion dollars almost 10 years ago, what's Wellington's privates today? Some multiple of that, I would imagine. Correct. So we're at about eight billion of commitments and uh, money under management. We now have five products in the space. In fact. My original product invested in biotech in 2019. We spun out biotech into a separate dedicated product uh, for the biotech space. And now we've added products in investment grade private credit. Uh, we have a uh, product in the uh, sustainability climate area. Uh, we have a product called Wave, which is focused on, on diverse uh, founders. And so now we've uh, built out the, the space further. And our hopes are to launch additional products in the space over the next several years and really build a very uh, multi-dimensional, multi-asset platform that will address private equity, mostly in venture, credit, as well as as real estate. So, so I've read a bunch of analyst research 
technical term, bunch of research. Um, but I've frequently seen um, analyses that show micro cap and, and small cap run very parallel to venture capital in terms of performance and, and volatility and other descriptions. Uh, what have you found, uh, given your background running small cap at one point in time and now doing a little bit later late stage venture capital, are, are the parallels there at all or, or is that sort of academic research overstated? No, I think I think it's a very fair characterization of the way to think about this because it's kind of the way that I thought about this. And in fact, what's interesting is that in my product, we have several clients that use us as a small cap growth alternative. And the reason being is that if you believe in my premise that companies are staying private longer, what's happening is many companies today are going public and skipping small cap, right? If you think about the Airbnbs and right. Ubers and many, many others, they're coming public not at $300 million. They're coming public at $10 billion, $20 billion, $30 billion. And so their view is that, well, if we want to continue to have exposure to the next generation of great companies, this is a product that will enable us to have exposure to that set of companies. And so I think it is a fair characterization. In fact, when we look at performance, we use as our public market equivalent, we use the Russell 2000 Growth Index as our comparison of whether we're doing a good job or not doing a That's good job. That's your benchmark. Correct, correct. Uh, so so the obvious question is, it, first, your thesis has proven to be true for a long time. What are we down to, 3,500 companies in the Wilshire 5000? Fewer companies going public, so you definitely got that right. I got to ask, why do you think that is? What is the underlying reason why companies are choosing to stay private for longer? I think it's a really great question. And when we first started, we felt the thesis was that Sarbanes-Oxley that was put in place in the early 2000s made it a little bit more onerous and made it more expensive for smaller cap companies to go public because they we they raised the regulatory burden of doing that. And I think that was the, the genesis of this. But as I sat in the boardroom, and we have a lot of uh, observation rights, board observation rights in terms of what we do, probably get them close to 75% of the time. What I've discovered is that I think it actually makes sense because when you're private, you can think more strategically. You're not trying to make the March quarter and the June quarter and you the September quarter. You think longer term, for sure. Correct. You can think longer term, and when you're still at a phase where you have $50, $7,500 million of revenues, you, you want to have a lot of latitude. You want to have the ability to say, you know what, we need to invest more money now. And as you know, you start making decisions like that in the public market and you release your earnings results and say like, hey, our earnings next quarter are going to be half of what we thought they were going to be, your stock price generally doesn't go up. And then, right. you, and then you go into the doghouse and you got to scratch your way out of it. Whereas when, I, when I'm in the boardroom, we probably spend 10% of the time maybe talking about the quarter and 90% of the time really thinking strategically about where we can take this business. How do we expand our product line? How do we expand geographically? How do we expand distribution? And so I think that for me, my, my thinking has evolved in that I believe that it could make companies stronger for longer if they have more time to think strategically and then make that transition to having to balance the strategic with the tactical. There's no doubt that the era when you were running a mutual fund, the late 90s, there was a rush to bring a lot of premature companies public. So, so let's hold that aside. Clearly, just 
you know, issuing IPOs based on clicks and eyeballs wasn't going to work. But that said, you, you bring up the regulatory burden of our of Sarbanes Oxley, but that alone wouldn't get it done if there wasn't just tons and tons of capital around. Talk about what's available for early stage, seed, late stage companies that are looking to do around. There's no shortage of investors around, are there? Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point because everything I just said would mean nothing if there wasn't capital to deploy into these businesses. And over the last, call it 20 plus years, which from early stage and seed to late stage, there has been more and more capital. In the, I think in the earlier stage, it's much more dedicated funds. It's a traditional uh, VCs that, that we all know that are in that market. And as you get to the later stage, it's a, it's a lot more eclectic. It's some dedicated funds like ours. There are more multi-stage funds where there are funds that were doing series Bs and Cs and are now doing late stage. We're generally, our fund, averaging a series D in terms of where we invest. There's crossover funds, there's hybrid funds, even hedge funds and mutual funds have invested in this space. And so there are a lot of pockets. A lot of people like myself, when I first started, uh, are taking public mutual funds, some of the bigger players out there, and they're also investing in this space. And so there has been more capital available for these companies, which is what has enabled them to stay private longer. Hmm. Really interesting. So let's talk. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Talk a little bit about the process of evaluating different types of, of privates. You kind of alluded that the skills you learned evaluating small cap growth companies is very ap- applicable to late stage venture uh, and other privates. Uh, take us through that. What 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 are the similarities? Yes, absolutely. And because I would not be a good early stage investor. I don't have any skill sets in evaluating three people in a garage with an idea. <laughs> right. And but when we're looking at companies and many of the companies in our portfolio, they all have usually $50 million plus in revenues. Many of them have 100, 200 plus in revenues. Those skill sets are very applicable. And because there's now product market fit. There's now streams of data about how their customers have responded to their product, how sticky are their customers, what the competitive landscape looks like. So all of the information that we were assessing on the public side is very applicable to the private side. And what I think distinguishes us at Wellington is that we're able to utilize our public market investors in the due diligence process in helping us assess. We have 55 global industry analysts that have been covering their industries for 10, 20, 30 plus years. And whether it's logistics or aerospace or a software company, we have the information 
And we have the skill sets to do that. And we have a lot of data to analyze and we could predict the future. We know what the company's thinking about the future. Our numbers are generally going to be lower because many of those numbers are aspirational. But assessing management teams, so qualitative and quantitative, is very similar to what I've done on the public side for many, many years. So, so the parallels, you have a management team that you can evaluate, you have a product that you can review, you have customers and, and revenue you can look at, all of this comes down to execution. Those are the similarities. What are the differences when you're looking at a company that hasn't yet gone public, isn't quite that mature? I think it's, I wouldn't think of it as a difference, but I think it gets to your point. The part that we don't know is the future. Can this management team execute from here to the public markets? And we always believe that our value added in this space is that we can help them on that last mile from the private market to the public market. So, so that's you, you're touching on something I want to ask. What are the milestones between a $50 million company, meaning they're doing $50 million in revenues, they've been around a few years, but they want to bulk up, they want to become more substantial. Uh, do do we care about round numbers like $100 million or $500 million in sales? Or is we just want to see that steady growth over time and greater customer acquisition? I think... Every company is unique and their journey is very unique. And what I have found is that there have been a number of situations where we invested and things went off the rail early on and the companies needed to pivot or they had big headwinds. I always love to use the example of Coupon, which is in the e-commerce space in South Korea, whose growth rate, while we owned it, went from probably 100% down to 20% and then re-accelerated as they got their logistics strategy in order. And then DraftKings, which is kind of the poster child that was at one point sued by practically every attorney general in the country, right. questioning whether Daily Fantasy Sports was even legitimate, and then eventually became a big player in, in sports betting and, and iGaming. And so those, those went totally off the rails. They, we had marked them down probably close to 50% at one point and then ended up being two of our best outcomes is that every company just has a different journey and the goal is is to be patient in many you, cases. You were an early investor in DraftKings also, is Correct. that right? And then uh, what was the resolution? So we know what happened with them. They blew up when the Supreme Court overturned uh, the, the rule that only allowed gambling in certain states. And now they're one of the a handful of giant players there. What was the Korean company? So the Korean company, uh, South Korean company is called Coupang, which is basically simply the Amazon of South Korea. Mm -hmm. And so they went through, and I remember going through this with Bomb, who was the CEO, is that they were going through a very similar thing that Amazon went through early in their existence, is they were going from multiple day delivery down to two day delivery to one day delivery to literally hour delivery. And doing all the logistics behind that required a lot of infrastructure. And at one point they had to really slow down growth to make sure they got that right. right. And once they got it right, they were able to reaccelerate and they had, a moment where they were getting very close to running out of capital, but they were able to put a round together, and then they ended up having a really good outcome uh, in the public markets. And when they went public. They correct, they did. They're public. Yeah, public on, on Nasdaq, and so they've now been public. I think they went public in 21, so they've been public two plus years now, and so they had a really good outcome. But those were two that were not, you know, as your, to your point, going up and to the right. Like right. it was, there was a lot of sideways there and a lot of nail biting. And then they ended up having good outcomes. But then there's others that, to your point, will just continue to to pound out 40, 50, 60% growth and, and go from unprofitable to eventually profitable. And then our job is just really to help them 
think through what do you need to do between now and when you go public to make sure that you remain a very attractive company in the public markets, right? Because there's always this risk, which I worry a lot about, is that companies stay private longer, but sometimes they can stay private too long. Right, they right? miss their window. Correct, because you need you still need to have a really good story for the public markets, because the public markets want to see a long-term trend that they can buy into. And if, if they believe that you've already seen your best days, your best days are now behind you, that's not going to be a really interesting public investment. And so we really need to think through what's the right timing, what are the right dynamics, and what do you need to do today to set yourself up for a really strong public showing. So how do these areas work together or are they three distinct um, fields of investing? So some of it works together and there's some synergies and some ability for us to really invest across the the platform from early stage to late stage on the venture side. Investment grade private credit is a totally new area for us. But I think the commonality of everything that we're doing is through the lens of where can Wellington have an edge? What are we? What have we done historically on the public side that would make sense to port over to the private side and leverage and scale that? Right. So you think about credit. We have a multiple hundred billion, hundreds of billion dollars of revenue of of asset business in credit. And so we have a lot of expertise. We have a lot of experts, whether it's portfolio managers, analysts, macro economists. And so there's a lot of things that we can do in that space that we think we can deliver very strong results. And similarly, as we think about real estate, which we're not in yet, but something we're thinking about, we have a public REIT team on the equity side. We have a public presence on the credit and fixed income side. And so we think that's an area that we can extend our expertise to also. And so we think about it through through that lens in terms of where we where we believe the platform can enable us to be super strong. And what we've been very I think very successful at doing is attracting investors who buy into that. So is some of the thinking around that these are essentially uncorrelated in terms of of their returns, or do does eventually all things go to to one, and and the, the lack of correlation goes away? I think it always depends. I think you know when you look at what we're doing on the late stage space, that's probably the most correlated to the public markets. We're definitely right. taking the direction that we're going from, and and how our performance is somewhat from what's going on on the public side. Obviously, with our early stage fund, that's many years away from a liquidity event. So that's probably the least. Correlated, so I think it's going to depend on uh, on the asset class. I think all things. I don't think all things go to one, but there's going to be some correlation with what's going on in the public markets and what's happening economically. That's going to have an impact on on the the performance of the businesses that we're investing in on the private side, similar to businesses that we invest in on the public that, side. That, that's really interesting. So so let's talk a little bit about uh, the IPO market. Seems like it's been mostly frozen this year, 2023. Why do you think that is? So the IPO market always takes its cue from the public markets. And as you know, last year, 22, we had a bear market. It was pretty harsh bear market and particularly in growth. It was a modest bear market in the S&P 500 uh, off about 19%. But the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ, I think it was down 32 or 34%. That's a big, losing a third of your value, that's a big whack. Yes, that was that was a little bit more nuclear winter. And <laughs> if you look at the innards of that, there were a lot of companies down 60, 70, yeah. 
and 80%. And so when that happens, portfolio managers, having been one, shut down. The last thing you want to do when you have 50 fires in your portfolio is to look at a, at a new idea, right? You're still trying to figure out what, what you need to keep, what you need to jettison. And so that is why the IPO market shuts down in a bear market. Now, now today, uh, what do we have? The S&P, we're, we're recording this in the beginning of the fourth quarter. Uh, the S&P is up about 12% for the year, above average historically, and yet the IPO market still seems to be a little chilly. Is it just uh, recovering from last year, or why are we still you know, floundering along? So we're thawing. I think we're in the thawing, thawing. Okay. thawing moment, right? We're starting to get there. And if you look historically, and we've looked at data from the last 40 years, generally the IPO market, when it shuts down, it shuts down for about a year. Occasionally it will shut down for two years plus. And as mm -hmm. you're noting, we're kind of in the second year of this. And as you also noted, the markets are starting to recover. And as the markets recover, public investors start to get a little bit more comfortable looking at new ideas. And, and we've, we've had a few IPOs correct. trickle out this year, right? Anything catch your eye? You know, I don't look at the public markets quite as closely, but you had you had a cadre of companies come public several weeks ago mm -hmm. with Clavio, which is in a really interesting space in kind of the ad tech area, uh, and Instacart, which obviously was a down round, but still has an eight, nine billion dollar market cap. And of course, Arm, which was a much larger Giant, play and right. a spin out coming being respun out from Intel. And so to me, they they've traded fine, which is like a nice little indication that the health of the IPO market is beginning to improve. And of course, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know if the markets are up or down, but let's assume that they're stable over the next couple of quarters or several quarters. I think that there's a reasonable backlog of companies that will start uh, seeing being surfaced and starting to come to the IPO markets. We know we have companies in our portfolio that are beginning that preparation. So I think 20, my guess right now is that 2024 begins to normalize, and we'll see we'll see improvements in in the IPO market after two years of really very very low volume. So so a decade ago, you identify private companies are going to stay private for longer, which means there's going to be a delay uh, going public, and then a decade goes by and, and more or less proves your thesis correct. Over that ensuing decade, how has the IPO market changed? What's different about a company going public in 2024 than you when you were first making these observations in 2014. So I think generally what we're seeing is companies are going public later. So instead of being like four, five, six years into their existence, it's more like eight, nine, 10 years into their existence. And so by definition, these companies tend to be more mature and tend to be larger than they were a decade ago, and particularly when I started in the business and was managing money back in the 1990s. And so there, these companies hopefully should have more sustainable performance and be a little bit less volatile. Albeit in 21, we had a, a rush for a lot of companies to come public and that right. class has not performed well, which is probably a good cautionary tale that you should be more mature when you hit the public markets. So in the 90s, when you were running public funds, uh, that IPO process was very much a dog and pony show. Um, you would have the investment bank and the founders and a whole bunch of folks do these giant road shows, and they would go from New York to Boston. They'd go out to San Francisco. Uh, they would go all around the country showing off the company before the big wedding. 
Uh, how is it today? Do we still go through that same process or have capital markets evolved for, for taking companies public today? Well, the biggest difference is it's now Zoom, Zoom and Zoom, right? It's just a lot of Zoom meetings. So they're not running all over the world anymore, which is probably really good for- More efficient, for sure. Massively more efficient. We, we do have a couple of different directions we can take, although the majority of the companies are still doing a direct IPO, right? You have direct listings that got a lot of play a few years ago. Obviously, we saw a lot from the SPAC market a couple years ago. I think that trend ha- is in the rearview mirror. I always felt SPACs make sense in very specific cases, but if you're a really solid company, you can go public through an IPO. You don't need to do a SPAC. So I don't see SPACs coming back. So a lot has not really changed in that regard, other than the fact that you can that companies now can do a lot more meetings in a lot more locations in the comfort of their offices or their home. So let's talk a little bit about how you guys work with later stage companies. How do you think about these firms versus either an early stage company where you really don't have a sense of product and client base and companies that have gone public where they're fairly mature and it's pretty clear, hey, we have a sense of what the next five years might look like. These sort of straddle that gray zone in between. Correct. And the value that we add is very different than an early stage company, right? When you're an early stage investor, you're going to help them hire their first chief marketing officer, their first head of R&D, and, and many other many other uh, positions, and you're gonna work with that founding team on their product market fit. By the time we get involved, the company has been built. They've, had, they've achieved escape velocity, and it's really about how well they can scale, and that's where we come in, is really being able to help them, as I noted earlier, on that last mile. So for instance, we have an ESG team, And so we have a team led by Hillary Flynn that steps in and works with the company on what they're going to need to do from today to the time they go public to be at a level that's going to make them attractive to the most investors on the public side. Since, as we know, the public side, many investors care about issues around ESG, particularly around corporate governance and what the composition of the board of directors should look like and uh, and many other issues around that. We're going to help them really think about strategically and tactically the things that they're doing today that are going to have ramifications when they are a public company, whether they're introducing products that have lower gross margins, so optically gross margins are going to start going down and that could have an impact on their multiples uh, relative to things that they can do that can be gross margin enhancing and, uh, and what can they do to sustain their level of growth for the longest period of time. And as we talked about also, IPO timing. Sometimes we've suggested that companies delay their IPO because we think that they don't have the visibility to go public today. Others, we've suggested that they should go public sooner because of what we talked about, about not getting past their expiration date of having an attractiveness to public investors. So private equity firms tend to come in and take over running these companies. They they manage them. Not what you guys do. The description of how you approach late stage companies almost sounds like finishing school. You put the final touches and get them ready 
to send them out into the world. Is that too glib, or is that a fair way to describe that? No, I like that description. I think that's what we're doing is really helping them with finishing school. And importantly, we want them to be attractive to the public side of Wellington subsequent to their IPO. There's no guarantee. We always tell our companies we can't, we don't tell our public side what to do, but we've had a lot of success. And in fact, when you look at the numbers uh, over the first year those companies have gone public, we have bought massively more on the public side than we originally bought out of our private portfolios. And so that to me suggests that our finishing school is working very effectively and creating companies that are attractive to not just the public side broadly, but to many of the investors uh, on Wellington's public side. I'm I'm thinking about the tax consequences of what you just said. Can you own a company while they're still private and then shift that over to the public funds? Or does it have to go to the process of they IPO and and then you're buying shares in the secondary market. We can't. It has to be. It always has to be arm's length, and so we right. cannot take what we've done in the private side, and that's in dedicated funds, and transfer that to any of the other portfolios at Wellington. So everybody needs to make an independent decision, Got it. and we can't use our fund as a reservoir for the funds on the public. I side. I was just thinking of the the tax consequences of having to sell the privately held shares out into the market, and then someone else. In the same under the same roof goes out and buys those publicly shares. Seems like there's a there's a tax arbitrage to be had, but that might be a little too cute by half. No, but you can you are talking about a product that I think is very interesting in terms of the the hybrid space where you have public private products, and so it's something that we have actually in our fintech product. We have a public private product that can do just that. And we're thinking about additional ways that we can take advantage of our public and private market expertise to create products for our clients that can, that can do exactly what you're saying, is we can invest prior to the IPO, and then we can hold for the long term subsequent to the IPO. Huh. Really interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about valuation. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What metrics are you looking at when you're thinking about a a late stage venture investment? It depends on the company. And every company, we're going to use different metrics in healthcare versus tech versus consumer and fintech. Many of our companies are still burning cash when we get involved. And so a lot of times we're going to be thinking about normalized margins. And those normalized margins are going to dictate how we think about that price to revenue multiple that we're willing to put on that company at the time we invest. If a company ultimately is going to have 10% margins, then that's going to be much lower relative to a company that can have 30, 40% margins. And what I've done is really ported what I used to do on the public side to the private side in terms of thinking about ranges. I always like to think about what's my downside risk and what's my upside potential. And we want to skew our investments to those that we believe we have a lot more upside relative to our downside. So whenever I see, uh, forget even seed, like series A 
companies, it feels like everybody's just making up numbers. Hey, there is no product. There are no customers. How do you even come up with a multiple? This has to be very, very different than either seed or A-stage venture investments. Absolutely. Because as we've noted, we have companies with 100, 200, 300 million dollars of revenues. So we these know- are real companies, real products, real customers, real real businesses. These are real businesses. And so we can really look at this in terms of having a little bit more confidence. I always like to say that these are not riskless, but they've been de-risked, right? You know it's a company. You What we don't know is, will it scale from 100 million to 500 to a billion, or is it gonna be 100 and make its way to two to 300? So these aren't binary outcomes, either they, they work or they don't. It's, hey, is this gonna continue along or uh, as it is, or can we get them to the next level? Correct, and when you look at our portfolio over the last 10 years and all the outcomes we've had, we've gotten back our money or made money on about 80% of the deals that we've done. So it's a higher hit rate. I always think of it, this as a little bit more of a fat pitch portfolio, right. is that we stay away from binary events. We're looking for the events that the outcomes could be less good or they can be really good. You're not looking for the moonshots. You're not looking for the 100 to 1 and the other 95% of the portfolios go go to zero. No, we, we underwrite to a 2 to 3x return on our investment. And when you look at the performance of our funds that are more mature, fund one and fund two, we're right in that camp about net 2X or so, uh, but we're doing it over a shorter period of time in terms of, of how long it takes. We have, we have a shallower J curve because we're returning right. capital more quickly. And, so, and that's, so that's how we're thinking about this category is that to your point, the range of outcomes are a little narrower. We're, we're never gonna have 100X, but it's gonna be very rare when we get, when we get back zero. Right, so, so what leads you to a yes? Is it, is it a certain comfort level that with understanding the business? Is it the management team? Because you know, in my office, we've joked if it's not an obvious yes, it's a no. I don't know if you think of it in the same way when you're looking at late stage. I think it's more in that camp that it's gotta be a more obvious yes, but it's a lot, it's, it's, I always think about investing as matching the qualitative and the quantitative, right? Is that I've always said to analysts when I was on the public side that we could always make the numbers work, right. but we have to have a management team that can execute. And so we spend a lot of time with our management teams. In fact, on average, we know our management teams for over a year before we invest with them. We want to understand how did they execute from the first time we met them to now? Did they say they were going to do X and they did X or above X or was it 0.5 X, right? So we want to see what their credibility is. We want to understand how they built their team around them. Are, are they the type of management teams that want to hire people that are smarter than them or people that just want to say yes to them? And so we need to understand those dynamics. And so management is very, very important. I've always said in my career that I'd rather have an A management team running a C business than a C management team running an A business because that team will figure out how to mess it up. Right. And so I always want the former. And so that is a really, really important part of it. Then once we distinguish that we believe we have a good management team, then we have the ability to dig into the numbers and see if the numbers match what we're hearing from the team. Because typically we don't have numbers early on, we're just building a relationship. And so now we're gonna see if the numbers are matching the hype and the conversations that we've had with the teams. And it's amazing to me how many times that is not the case, but in the in the times that it is the case, then those are the deals that we're gonna to wanna to lean into and really determine 
if we believe this is a sustainable business. How big is the TAM, the total available market? Uh, or are they creating a, a new market? How fast are they growing today relative to other companies that were of similar scale? How sticky are their clients? What is their long-term value to customer acquisition costs? All of those dynamics to figure out if this company can be a lot larger in the future than it is today. Because generally, we're looking for an IPO about two to four years after we invest. And importantly, we have to look at it through the lens of can this eventually be a public company? Does this make sense that our that public market investors will be enamored and excited about seeing this company in the public market someday in the future? So do you work with other co-investors? Do you work with other firms? Or are these just one-off investments just with Wellington? So I'd say that almost every deal we do has a variety of investors in the cap table. We're not exclusive. Very rarely have we been, I don't know if we've ever been the only investor in the cap table in our round. One is we, we love to see insider involvement. We want to see insiders taking a pro rata or a super pro rata of the round because that there's a lot of information in that. If all the insiders sure. aren't playing or an insider is selling, then we generally don't want to be a part different, of that. Different uh, vibe there. Correct. And then generally there'll be other investors that invest alongside us. But importantly, we're not generally working alongside them because these are competitive deals and we want to get the maximum allocation that we need for our clients. And so we don't want to draw other people in during that process. We might help on the backside if we're leading the deal and there's other investors looking at it. But job one is making is figuring out for ourselves independently if we think this would be a good idea and making sure if we want, say, our average check size now in our fund is about 75 to 100 million, let's make sure that we can get that check. And we have co-investors that we work with that are clients of ours that we want to be able to offer them the opportunity to invest also. And so we, we kind of stay very stealth when we're in the due diligence process. And then generally we'll see other investors come in to fill out a round. Our, probably our average rounds are somewhere between 200 to $300 million total rounds. And we're doing just under half of that. So where does your deal flow come from? It sounds like very competitive space. How do you find your way to some of these uh, some of these late stage venture investments? Yeah, which is the most important part of what we do because the old adage is if you don't see it, you can't do it. Right. And so in our, our team on my product, which is called Hadley Harbor, we have 11 investors on our team and they are out there every day sourcing. I always think of it as kind of 40, 40, 20, 40% of the skill is on sourcing, 40% is due diligence, and 20% is the ongoing support of the companies, but probably close to 75% of the time is really going out and looking for deals. Our biggest source of deals are from our network of early stage investors that we have cultivated over the last decade. Uh, hundreds of investors who have invested in early stage companies that can help us get warm introductions to these companies. And by the time we get into our round, it's very common that we know the majority of the board that's in that company, which generally consists of early stage investors that are very important proponents of having us be involved with the company, that people believe that we can add value and that we're going to be additive uh, to that company over the time that we invest because we bring a much different angle given that we have the public market expertise relative to earlier stage investors and have had a lot of IPO outcomes and so we understand what it's going to take. But a lot of our sourcing comes from early stage seed Series A and even Series B investors who are, are part of our network. 
Let me throw a curveball at you. You previously served as the first male advisory board member of the Wellington's Women's Network. Do I have that right? You do have that right. So, I, I love the research. So tell us a little bit about why you were the first male member of the Wellington's Women's Network. Well, thank you for pointing that out. And it's something I'm actually very proud of because this was probably back in 2007 and 2008. And I believe that was our first internal business network. And a couple of the heads of, of that network came to me and asked if I would serve. And I was, I was very honored. And I think it was a testament to my advocacy for women in the firm. And, and so they felt that I could be a really strong advocate for them as we were trying to uh, elevate and get more women uh, as a part on the investment side and the business side and really uh, level the playing field over the longer term. And so I was, I was super happy to do it. And so I served on that, I think for about six or so years. And then interestingly today, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Cheryl O'Reilly, who's my co-head, obviously a woman, uh, but our whole, our management team on the private side consists of me and all women. I'm the only guy really? on our private on our private team management team, which is which is just great that that we've we've come to a point where, where we can really have that much talent on our team that that could help us build the business. And if I recall correctly, your CEO, correct, Gene, Gene Hines. Hines, right? Mm -hmm. uh, aren't a lot of women in the world running a trillion dollar company? She's one of them. Correct. And Gene and I have grown up in the firm. Gene's story she always talks about that she started as, as an assistant out of uh, Wellesley and worked her way up to being a global industry analyst and then managing partner. And then in 21, she took over as CEO of the firm. And so to your point, um, she is she is still in the minority, but, uh, but an increasing percentage of the Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Of, of, minor, of the minority, and so it's get, it's, everything is getting better over the longer term. Huh, really interesting. All right, I know I only have you for a limited amount of time, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with what's keeping you entertained these days? What are you uh, streaming, watching, or listening to? Sure, so right now I'm streaming The Crown, so I know that I'm, I'm a little behind the eight ball so on that good, one. So good, though, isn't it? It's, I love it because there's so much about the, the UK that I don't know, uh, particularly kind of pre-Charles and Diana. And so I'm now on on season four. So the first three seasons were really early in Queen Elizabeth's reign. And there was just a lot of information and just super well done. The acting is is great. And then the one that I just finished- that By the I, way, I think there's one more season coming of The Crown. Great. Because I'm 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 slowly catching up. I got, you know, it's my, it's my treadmill uh, entertainment. So I'm slowly catching up. And then the one that I watched recently that I absolutely loved was The Bear. 
So good. And season two, which I just fin- finished recently, my wife and I finished, was phenomenal. And episode six might be one of the best. Was that Copenhagen or was that The Forks? No, episode six was well when Jamie Lee Curtis and Bob Odenkirk, and it was the I think oh was, the family Christmas, the family Christmas that was painful, that was difficult to watch. That was, was real time family meltdown. Yes, I mean my, that, my wife walked out in the middle of that and said, "Let me know when it's over." She could not sit through that. But I think I think it was some some of the best acting. Jamie Lee Curtis was just unbelievable in the acting and the whole situation. I mean, I'm sure many many families can relate to the dysfunction. Uh, and oh, just sure. inc- incredibly well done. Re- really, really interesting stuff. So let's talk about mentors who helped shape your career. Sure. So there's so many. I'm always afraid that I'm going to forget people. But two of the people at, at Wellington who I co-managed money with when I first got there and were just phenomenal investors. One was was Bob Rands, who was we always refer to him as the godfather of growth. He was one of really one of the first true growth investors at Wellington. Just a phenomenal investor and keeping it super simple having just a great feel for the markets, but just just being able to meet with a management team and evaluate them and, and making decisions based on those evaluations. And then the other one uh, was Saul Pinnell, who ran the, uh, ran the Hartford Capital Appreciation Fund from inception to, I think about 2015, had just phenomenal performance, but he was like an old school, go anywhere capital appreciation manager. There were times where he could be positioned incredibly aggressively in growth companies. And then there were times that he could be very value oriented. And so I don't think anybody I worked with did as good a job as navigating the tech bubble back in 2000 as he did and having great performance in 1999 and then also having amazing performance in 2000. And he he's just an amazing, amazing investor. So I say those would be two that were very important in my career. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites and what are you reading right now? Sure. So a couple of books that I, I've really enjoyed over the last few years. One was The Silent Patient by Alex uh, Michaelides that just was an, kind of like a psycho thriller uh, story and just had one of the most amazing twists towards the end that, I, that I've that i ever- This is fiction or nonfiction? This is, this is fiction. Uh-huh. So that's a fiction book. And then the other one that I read, which is an older book, I think it was written 20, 25 years ago, was The Human Stain by Philip Roth. That was just also incredibly well written. As a matter of fact, they just I was a part of something that everybody had to rec- bring a book. You had to literally bring a book, right. and that was the book that I that I I brought. And then the one I'm reading right now that I'm you know on my Kindle, supposedly seventy percent of the way through, is a book called The Color of Water by James McBride, which was recommended to me by my, my my favorite book recommender, which is my friend Susie. And it's a biography slash autobiography, and it's written by a black man who was brought up by his white mother who grew up as an Orthodox Jew. Okay. And so he learns later in life that he didn't know that he was actually Jewish and his mother would never tell him anything. And he finally got his mother to tell him his story. And so the the story is like one chapter of his life, him telling his life, and then another chapter of his mom talking about her life, juxtaposition between their two huh. lives. And so How it's interesting. an incredibly fascinating book. And so that's what that's what I'm reading right now. Our final two questions. What advice would you give a recent college grad interested in a career in either finance, uh, mutual funds, private placements, late stage venture? What sort of advice would you give them? Yeah, well, part of the answer is what you just said. There's so much more variety of what you can do 
in the investment world than say when I got out of school close to 40 years ago, which was, you know, it was kind of one game. It was really public markets, but now with private credit and private equity and ETFs, as well as the public markets, it's just a variety of things that you can do. And so the advice I would give somebody coming out of school is figure out where your passion is, figure out what your investment style and what works for you. Do you want to be at a hedge fund and really be in the day by day and have to make basically a lot of decisions in short amount of time, or do you want to have a much longer time frame? Are you more in the growth mindset versus the value mindset? So you need to think about all this and head towards a direction that really fits your personality. Like for me, I know early on, I always tell the story that my moment was when I saw Rod Canyon of Compact unveil the first true laptop back in 19, I think 88 or 89. I was getting tingles When you say that. laptop, I remember those. Because they were like these big giant suitcases. The the monitor were like the lid of a suitcase with a handle sticking out, and they weighed like a hundred pounds. They, luggable. They call right? them luggable. Luggable. You knew it was going to be the creation of a market, right? Because this was a totally new market. And you think about you know fast forward to today. I think mo- most people have laptops versus versus desktop. Like at Wellington, we all have laptops now. We just plug it in when we go. Right. We don't have any desktops in the entire, almost the entire organization. And so it's it was the beginning of a major, major trend, right? Just like the iPhone, when the iPhone was introduced, think about like nobody had a computer in their pocket. You had these Blackberries or you had these these flip phones, but you didn't have you didn't have the internet in your hand right. at that moment in time. So seeing those develop and understanding that sometimes these trends are overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term and really right. trying to pick, find those inflection points, that's what I always loved about investing is being ahead of the crowd and trying to figure out where the puck is going to go before massively before it gets there. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 30 or so years ago when you were first getting started? So I think I was thinking about it from the context of like over the last kind of two decades. And I think it, I wish I knew interest rates were going to stay low for as long as they did. Because it was just I, 40 years it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> exactly. If you knew that, right, if you, if you knew it was just going to be down and to the right from 1982 to 2021, you would have been massively more aggressive in terms of your investments. I mean, I was in I've been an aggressive investor. I've been a growth investor. That's not been bad. It wasn't because I knew interest rates were going to go down, but think about all the trends around buyout and and everything in the investment universe that's been that's benefited from that that it would have been great to know. Now, I think that that lesson was obviously two generations, but I don't think that that's going to help you over the next couple of decades because I think interest rates going to zero is probably some a, a thing of the past. Huh. Very, very, very interesting. Michael, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Michael Carmen, co-head of private markets at Wellington Management. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous 500 discussions we've had over the past nine years. You can find those at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter once again at Ritholtz. Follow all of the Bloomberg fine family of podcasts on Twitter or X at podcast. 
I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Rich Subnati is our audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Anna Luke is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.